encountering the texture of the text of God's Word, text and context. All right, good morning, everybody. This is my last Sunday to talk about Mark, so I've got to use up every second I've got. Hop into the crucifixion. And we all know there's very little to say about an event as simple and easy to understand and expound upon as the crucifixion, of course. Lord have mercy that I only spend one Sunday on the crucifixion. Um, there's some other stuff, uh, you know, of course, the passion leading up to the crucifixion. There's, of course, the resurrection. Mark's resurrection narrative is tremendously short. It's only like, what, six, eight verses in chapter 16. Uh, I'm not going to talk about the ending of Mark. Um, I have talked about that previously, but just suffice it to say, if your Bible puts the ending of Mark in brackets, I think they got it right. Um, but whatever. Um, but we're going to focus in on the crucifixion specifically, so in Mark 15 today. So go ahead and open to Mark 15 if you're going to follow with me. I'll start in, well, I'll actually start like getting into it in verse 21, but I'm going to make a brief comment about stuff before that uh, without reading it uh, before that. But before I hop in, let me pray, and then we'll look at Mark one last time. Lord God, as we open your word, to open also our head and our hearts, and our hands. Amen. Amen. Mark 15. Okay, here's the deal about Mark 15. There's one phrase that's going to show up over and over and over and over again, and I'm not going to read every time it shows up, but it shows up over and over and over again. And that phrase is, the king of the Jews. Over and over again, king of the Jews. This is Jesus' coronation. There's more like background that I could go into that I don't want to go into. I want to go into, but I don't have time to go into as far as like the parallels between um, s- some uh, small little details about the way the crucifixion and everything leading up to the crucifixion is going on and uh, how a Caesar would be installed as Caesar. There's some very interesting parallel there. I don't have time to go into it this morning, um, but suffice it to say, uh, this is Jesus's coronation, inauguration. Uh, yeah, coronation. I kept saying inauguration last week and David corrected me because... That's more like a president versus a coronation, which is more like a king, and that's more like what we're dealing with. So coronation. But over and over again, king of the Jews. Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Um, uh, At one point, Pilate asks the Jews, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they're like, he's not our king. Um, Over and over again, he's called king of the Jews. Uh, They mock him, and they begin, begin praising him, saying, hail the king of the Jews. Right. So over and over again. But I want to focus in specifically more on, and, and it was just a judicious decision, right? Like, how do you, do you try to give, like, spark notes of all the rest of Mark, or do you just focus in on a smaller section, right? So I decided to focus in on the crucifixion, because we're people of the cross. You can't go wrong with that. So, uh, so starting in verse 21, I'm going to read in there. We're going to kind of get down in the weeds on this. They, this would be the Roman soldiers, compelled a passerby who was coming in from the country to carry his, Jesus's, cross. The person was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Okay, I have to pause there. There's no way to prove this, but I'd like to think it's true. Do you remember a Rufus anywhere else in the New Testament? Hint, there's a Rufus elsewhere in the New Testament. (laughs) I mean... 
But I don't know where he is, man. <laughs> Romans 16. Paul has this great list. It's the end of Romans. Paul is saying, well, say hello to so-and-so and say hello to so you know, tell so and so that we've we've uh, we're not done with that monopoly game. We'll finish it when I come back. And tell so and so, you know, and he's doing all that stuff. And in the midst of it, in Romans sixteen thirteen, he says, "Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and greet his mom, because she's been a mother to me also." And uh, I think I've said this before. I totally stole this from a different preacher, but you can hear it, right? Like you can hear Rufus's mama trying to take care of the apostle Paul. Paul, I want you to sit down and have your breakfast. Well, I've got to travel across Asia this morning. Paul, I don't care if you are an apostle. An apostle's got to eat. You sit down and have your breakfast. Right? She was a mother to me also. So if it's the mother of Rufus, and Rufus's father is Simon the Cyrene, at least possibly, then Simon the Cyrene, it seems like either he already was a Jesus follower, or I'd like to think that this event was impactful enough that this has led to his conversion. That he said, there's something about that Jesus guy. Imagine being forced to carry the cross beam for somebody. Um, and that's what converts you. <laughs> Talk about a new evangelism strategy. Uh, starting uh, on Monday, we're going to go out and try to force people into hard labor. And then they'll convert to convert to the faith. Uh, oh, really? Okay. Uh, I don't think there's a relation. Mm, could be. Uh, so one technicality, often in depictions of the passion, you'll see Jesus carrying the whole cross pre-made it's probably not what you're seeing here probably it's just the cross beam and by probably i mean it's just the cross beam which is heavy enough as is yeah heavy enough as is but um they've already beat him they've already uh, uh mocked him pretty good so he's already in a somewhat weakened state right then they ask him to carry this a lot of people don't make it all the way a lot of people might die on the way um so they ask simon of cyrene what'd you say yeah they, well, yeah, they told him to. I, I'm so pleasant and nice. I learned, I'm a minister. I learned how to get volunteers, right? I tell them, but I act like I ask them, right? Hey, can you do X? Huh? Hey, can you do X? Like, yes, I can do X. Yeah. Um, so, I, I don't know. I find that family relation interesting. Maybe Simon converts, he and his wife, and then that wife becomes a mother to the Apostle Paul, right? Wow. You just never know where you're going to be at the right time, at the right place, and what God can do with that. And you never know where extraordinary salvation is breaking out in the midst of an ordinary universe. And also, you know what? Let's say Simon, let's say Simon was not the most remarkable Christian there ever was. I mean, he carried the cross. That's pretty cool. But on the list of things to do, like, come on. That's, that's not the most. It's not like he performed a miracle like Peter or you know, preach to thousands of people or whatever, but but at the very least his faith and conversion seems genuine. And it seems that his wife's conversion was genuine as well. Probably, you know, what came first, chicken or the egg? I'd say him maybe. And then eventually she becomes a mother to the Apostle Paul. Right? Like we all have a part to play. Never diminish the part you play. Whatever that is. Whether it's carrying a crossbeam to help Jesus get where he's going, or whether it's being a mom to the Apostle Paul. Somebody's got to. Right? We all have a part to play. Um, anyway, uh, they offered him wine. Oh, I skipped a verse. Verse 22. Then they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his clothes among them, casting lots to decide what each should take. 
Uh, I said last week I wasn't going to read Psalm 22, and I can't read all of Psalm 22, but I've got to read some of Psalm 22, because you can't read the crucifixion of Jesus without reading Psalm 22. Oh my word! And we're already seeing where it ties in, but we'll see it even more in a minute when Jesus speaks from the cross. Um, Y'all ever seen those Bible studies that say the the last seven words from the cross, or something like that? Those are interesting and really uh, illuminating. I, I... I find it interesting, though, like the way Mark tells the story, he really only says one thing on the cross. Right? No, that's in a different gospel. It's far more forsaken in Mark. I think there's only one thing he says. My God, my God. My yes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the only thing Jesus says on the cross in Mark. Tell me that doesn't paint a different portrait than hearing some of the other things that Jesus says on the cross. In other words, don't blend all seven. I mean, ultimately you have to. He said all seven. But whenever you're reading the way Mark tells the story, he purposefully didn't say the other stuff. He recorded this, inspired by the, the Holy Spirit to give us only this statement from the cross. It's a, um, and, and the dramatic person in me loves this, right? It's a dramatic telling on purpose, right? It's not untruthful to leave out certain details. He's not trying to tell you every last detail. He's trying to paint a portrait of something. He's trying to make Luke a statement about who he is. Huh? Luke is trying to do every last detail. Luke, by his own admission in the beginning of his gospel, I've taken it under... I take you, Theophilus, I've decided to write an orderly account. No kidding. That's why he's my least favorite. Mark, <laughs> I like uh, he's Mark, fine. And Mark says, and they crucified him. And they crucified him. That was, it needs more description than that. <laughs> it just, it's just too direct. So I was going to say this too. We often focus so much. I, I almost wonder if we sometimes focus too much on the gruesomeness of the cross. It's like we get this, like, like, like uh, it's like we want to watch a torture thing. And it's like, oh, it's so brutal. Yeah. We're like, oh, wasn't that brutal? And it's like, yeah, that doesn't seem to be the primary thing the gospel author, authors emphasize. They talk about it some, but that's the gruesomeness of it is actually just something they're like, yeah, it was, I mean, it was terrible. And then they move on. They're making a deeper point. So I'm, I'm not saying we don't talk about it. We, we should. It's there. It's historical. It's real. Crucifixion is awful. Surely, I think, the worst torture that's ever been invented ever, right? But the gospel authors don't seem to think that that's the most important part of what's going on there. Maybe we shouldn't think that's the most important part of what's going on either, right? Yeah. But he does only say, and they crucified him. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> well, wasn't, I mean, wasn't it the way they did it that, mm-hmm. I mean, so it seems barbaric to us. Yeah. yeah, we kill people in other ways, but yeah. Um, yeah. But to them, it was yeah, just another just another crucifixion. Just another yeah. That's a good point. Crucifixion was tremendously, tremendously common. Yeah. Every person in the Roman Greco-Roman world has seen crucified people, right. and prob- probably most of them have seen a crucifixion beginning to end. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they're lining, and we'll talk about this a bit in a moment. Whenever uh, people who are passing him by are taunting him. They lined the streets with crosses, right? So the, the, road, the, the interstate leading in and out of Jerusalem. They don't have interstates, but you get what I'm saying. They line them with crosses so that as you're walking about every so many yards, you have to look at it. Now your preacher, and since this is my last Sunday, I can say this, would never watch Game of Thrones. But if he had, he would tell you that in Game of Thrones, the TV show, they, they depict this very historically accurately. There's a city where they, they take these, these slaves and to make a point that, you know, we're still the slave masters. They crucify people every, you know, mile and have them pointing towards the city. That's actually 
I don't know. I don't think they did the pointing thing. I meant to look that up, but the the every so often marker leading up to the city. Yeah, that's how they did it. Super common. And there's not like up on the Skull Hill. Probably not up on the hill. He's probably down at the bottom of the hill, right there where you could probably look. Just just you just have to look up a tad, and you can look in his eyes. It's right there. It's not like uh, it's not like uh, they're, they're, you, you could get right up next to it. Yeah, you could get right up next to him. Psalm 22. You've got to read Psalm 22, and you've got to read the whole thing. We're not going to read the whole thing, but you need to read the whole thing if you're going to look at the crucifixion, especially in Mark, because Psalm 22, it's, it's uh, ah, there's so much to it. I'll read just the, the first little bit. It starts on a very positive, happy note. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our ancestors trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Who's probably the speaker of this psalm? Or at least we're led to believe it is. David. A psalm of David. Jesus is of the the line of David. The messianic, the kingly. Remember, messianic is kingly, right? He's the king. And remember, this is his coronation or, or inauguration or whatever. Um, let's see. Verse 6, But I am a worm and not a human, scorned by others and despised by the people. All who see me mock at me. They make mouths at me. They shake their heads. Commit your cause to the Lord. Let him deliver. Let him rescue the one in whom he delights. Taunting him. The one in whom he delights. Doesn't that sound like my one and only son, the beloved? Right. Um, yet it was you who took me from my womb and kept me safe at my mother's breast. Um, skipping down to verse 17. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. That's what they just did. They, they take his clothes and they're, they're gambling over it. Um, but you, O Lord, O Yahweh, do not be far away. O my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Who was saved from the mouth of a lion, by the way? Interesting. Interesting. And da- in Daniel's book, that's where we get Jesus' favorite term of self-reference, right? Son of man. Yeah. Uh, son of man. Like the, the vision in Daniel 7 of... Uh, the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven and all that. Yeah. Um, skipping down to verse 25. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will pay before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise Yahweh. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to Yahweh. And all families of the nations shall worship before him. For dominion belongs to Yahweh. And he rules over the nations. To him indeed shall all who sleep in the earth bow down. Before him shall bow down all who go to the dust, and I shall live for him. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn, saying that he has done it. You see some connection, right? Oh, yeah. Or a lot of connection. So the, the casting lots and the mocking, all of it, and especially that particular phrase, which we'll get to more in a second, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Verse 25. It was 9 o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. When they started. 
uh, the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with them they crucified two <coughs> bandits, one on his right and one on his left. Remember, James and John are asking, can we sit on your right and your left when you come into your glory? This isn't what we think of as glory, but I'm telling you, this is the most glorious event history has ever seen or ever will see. And if we claim anything else, then, then go somewhere else. You're not a Christian. <laughs> this, is, this is like the defining moment, right? Like the cross. The, the, this is... It's like Paul said, you know, if you don't believe in the resurrection, what's the point? Yeah. And the cross is the precursor to the resurrection. Yeah. He has to die in order to then be raised again. Yeah. Yeah. This is, uh, I mean, yeah, he's in his glory. This, is, this doesn't feel glorious. It feels glorious, but it doesn't feel glorious. But I'm telling you, it is. This is the most glorious thing we will ever see. It kind of, it kind of reminds me of when we're, when we're personally in turmoil or, or pain mm. or, or suffering. We're out of it on the other side. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, to go a little nerd on you for a moment. Um, yeah. I got you, Alex. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, right? Creator of the Lord of the Rings. He came up with a concept called the U-E-U, U-Catastrophe. One word, you catastrophe. You in Greek is a prefix that means good. It's the good catastrophe. Now, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, just go back in your mind and think about all the little good catastrophes that happen. At every stage of the story, it's all about to go to pot, and then all of a sudden something crazy and disastrous happens, and it ends up for the good. Right? Um, I would posit that the cross is the ultimate good catastrophe. Everything about it is catastrophic. But everything about its consequence is good. It doesn't mean the, the... Whenever he says good catastrophe, he does not mean the catastrophe itself that's happening is good. Spoiler alert about one thing. And the, the, the big one is whenever Frodo hesitates to throw the ring into the pit of doom, and then Gollum bites his finger off and it ends up getting thrown in anyway. It needed to go in. He hesitated and wasn't going to throw it in, but Gollum bites his finger off. Is it good or bad to lose a finger? Can we, can we agree on that? Bad. But is it good that the ring got thrown away? Is it good or bad that Jesus got crucified? Well, it's, it's a bad thing. Like it's, it's ugly. It's gruesome. It's awful. But are the consequences good or bad? Good. Yeah, it's a good okay. catastrophe. This is the good catastrophe. Go ahead. I think about um, the fact that the greatest, um, the, the greatest tragedy, the greatest uh, um, injustice, and yet the, the greatest good happened when he took, and this was the pain of the cross, I think, is when he took the weight of our sin. Mm. Of, of every vicious child murderer, the most horrible person in the in the entire world, he took all that, and with that, I think can that since he wasn't guilty, nor did he have a sense of guilt, but yet all the depression, all the anxiety, all the horrible stuff that comes with living a dark life, didn't did he not take all that on yeah. him? Every curse, every evil thing, yeah. and then he. It was, it was on him, and then he died and rose victorious over it. That's it's not good, but it is. Yeah. 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 It's not good, but the consequences are good. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well said, Carrie. Um, verse 29. Those who passed by derided him. And I have to pause there. Does your Bible have a footnote on derided? Does your translation have a footnote on derided? Does it have like a, mine, mine has like a little letter over derided and then at the bottom it says something else. 
No? Mine says insulted, but I know what you're going to say. It says uh, hurling abuse. Hurling abuse. <laughs> so the word for derided, and I think some older translations do this too, like maybe, I don't know if the King James or New King James does this or not, but uh, it's the same word for blasphemy, right? So in the Greek, it's the same word for blasphemy. Like if you, like they accuse Jesus of, or Jesus accuses them of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, right? Now they're blaspheming at him. It's kind of a play on words, right? It's, the word blaspheme is not a special word all by itself. It's the same word for like if I, um, like I, 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 I slander you, right? It's like, this, it's like the same word in Greek. You can use it either way, but it, it's, a, it's a double entente. They're slandering him, but they don't realize they're blaspheming him. Do you get what I'm saying? They're like, they're calling him these things, but they don't realize what they're actually doing is committing blasphemy. What they're actually doing is, is insulting the very son of God, right? Um, it's, it's, a, it's a funny play on words. So I, I, you know how much I love words. I just have to. Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. You're going to do something as great as destroy the temple and build it back? You can't come down off a cross? Come on. In the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes, were also mocking him among themselves and saying, well, he saved others. He can't save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now so that we may see and believe. Um, Those who were crucified with him also taunted him. Just strange. Uh, you know, we do get told by other gospels that, for example, one of them taunts him, and one of them, I guess, eventually stops taunting him and says, Remember me, Lord. He says, Today you'll be with me in paradise. We all remember that passage. But uh, it seems a lot less hopeful the way Mark tells the story. Everybody's taunting him. Not even the people who are getting, you know, like sometimes if you're like being persecuted together, at least there's like a solidarity. It's like, well, we're all going to be fired for standing up for our ethics, you know. And then they back out at the last minute, right? Like, who knows? Like, but but it, 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 the sense of his utter aloneness is evident. And, uh, I mean, what would you utter other than a phrase like, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, all these taunts are like the thing about the, the blasphemy. They're ironic in a way, Right? They don't realize it's ironic, but it is ironic. They, um, they're saying, well, he can do this. Why can't he save himself? Well, ultimately, he kind of will, right? He will rise from the dead. The Spirit will raise Jesus from the dead, and he'll be vindicated. And, and um, you know, well, he's going to tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days? Well, yeah, <laughs> he's about to because he was talking about his body, not the temple, right? Um, and then they say, oh, well, let the Messiah, the King of Israel. Well, he really is the Messiah, the King of Israel. Right, the, it's. I think the crucifixion narrative as a whole is drenched in irony. Right, imagine not seeing something that significant right in front of you, mocking it as if, oh, that's not what it is, but it is. You can see why they wouldn't think this. What kind of a king gets coronated this way? A very strange one, indeed. Yeah, Linda. Uh, my version says, "Let this Christ, mm. King of Israel, now come down from the cross on and on." Yeah. Let this Christ, like, like, uh, yeah, yeah, which that's even, I'd like to look and see what, I, I imagine that's closer, 
Because it is, remember, they've had hundreds and hundreds of false messiahs who've already come and said, I'm, I'm the dude, it's me. And then it doesn't work out. And after Jesus, they're going to continue to have a bunch of fake messiahs who come around and say, I'm the dude, it wasn't that guy, it's me. And they'll have one really bad one who actually will just get this temple destroyed because he wouldn't back down and ticked off the Romans and the rest is history now, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. It's... Um, Yeah, I'll tell you, the message is still one of my all-time favorites. I don't like a lot of things, but I love it overall. Something's coming to me, and I don't know if it's yeah. good or not. Whenever Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Way too many people take that to say, even God had problems and gave up and all that stuff. I don't believe that. that. Uh-huh. What I believe is that he's beginning to recite all of Psalm 23 and dies before we can finish it. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. How much more would he have quoted if he had the energy and the breath? Yeah. I like that. She said um, maybe Jesus was intending to quote the whole psalm but couldn't finish it. Right? Like like you start to say, it's like I'm dying and I say amazing grace. That's it. Like that kind of phenomenon. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the my God, my God. Let's let's read a couple more verses and, and get into the my God, my God. Because I have a lot that I, I'd like to meditate on for that. Uh, when it was This is verse 33. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Uh, that phrasing, by the way, sounds an awful lot like uh, whenever darkness comes over the whole land of Egypt in Exodus uh, 10, 22. Sounds a lot like it, right? Verbatim in the Greek, by the way. Okay. Until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. And he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, So, a couple things. He's quoting it in Aramaic. See that, right? Which is very close to Hebrew. You know, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. Mostly. Mostly. Yeah, that's right. There's, there is a little bit of Aramaic in the Old Testament. Don't get me started today, Micah. Uh, you're right. You're right. Uh, like, he didn't say it. Like, this is written in Greek, right? Greek was the common tongue of the time. But he didn't say it in Greek. He said it in the heart language of his people. Now, I, I've never, like, I've learned how to read a couple of languages, ancient ones. I took Spanish in high school, but whatever. Right. I did I didn't do enough with it. I should have. Right. C. Right. That's about all I got. But it strikes me from those my friends that I've had that, that do speak multiple languages, genuinely are fluent and conversant in multiple <coughs> languages. That even though they have just really learned to be completely fluent in a different language, that it's still never quite the same as the one that they that they learned to speak growing up. They call that the heart language, right? Like the one that you're like some sense deep inside of you beyond words speaks that. It speaks it without words in a weird way, right? Now, that's a, yeah, dialects are a whole language all their own. I agree with you on that one. Absolutely. And I, I, think, I think it's significant that he, he speaks the heart language of his people, right? Imagine it this way. You're, you have a foreign invader, Right? And they're forcing you for the whole, for commerce, for buying and selling and getting things done, for business, if you have to travel at all, 
they're going to travel to Rome probably and other places. The, the lingua, lingua franca, the, the language of dominance is Greek, Koine Greek, right? That's not your home language. Your home language is Hebrew or Aramaic in this case. You know how disconcerting and disheartening it is to be forced to speak something that doesn't come naturally to you? Whether it's a dialect, right? That's why I hate traveling in the north because I don't understand them and they don't understand me. I'm just being serious. It's fine. But, uh, yeah. Alan, what were you going to say? I had a friend of mine that would go out and eat lunch and stuff in Spanish. Yeah. And when we would pray, he would always ask me if I minded if he prayed in Spanish. Yeah. Because he said the words in English do not translate to the same. Yeah. And he was as adamant about that. So I wanted to pray in Spanish. Yeah. Because that's his heart. Like that. That's what feels most natural. Right? Jesus, what feels most natural to him is to pray in the, the language of his people, the, the Jews, the, the Israelites, to, to pray in, in the Aramaic, the Hebrew. He. Um, it's significant that he starts it this way, I think. And, but but also hear the phrase, "My God, My God," and, and I think we have come to remember this phrase because, of course, we've read this text a billion times. I, I fear that we miss the intonation, though, right? Like, this is pretty wretched, right? Like, the, like the, the delivery of it, right? Do you do you tend to repeat yourself if you're being poetic? Or do you tend to repeat yourself if you're being, like, if you're horrified, overwhelmed, distraught, right? Like, whenever um, there was a snake that crawled up in our drain the other day, scared scared the foo out of me, uh, you know? And so whenever you first discover it, you're like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, Hannah, 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 oh, my God, right? That's not... Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Hannah, Hannah, wherefore art thou? No! Right? Like, that's, like, you get what I'm saying, right? Like, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? That's a, it's, he's quoting a psalm. But if all of me could have picked, he didn't say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. <laughs> he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah, Karen. There's something that keeps coming into my mind. Oh, Go for it. Over. He tells Philip, if you've seen me, you've, you've seen, seen the, the Father. Father. Yeah. He is so used to being one with the Father that when the Father had to separate from him in order for him to die, because with the Father, with him, he couldn't die. Yeah. But he had, in order for, for him to give up his life, the Father had to separate from him and turn away because of all the sin, mm. all the, that could not touch the Father. So Jesus bore that by himself, and it was, my God, my God, because even though he knew technically what was going to happen, he, he is also human. And when he felt that, it was horrible. It was more horrific than the nails. I, I believe it was oh, more yeah. horrific than any of the pain Sure. to be separated from his father. Yeah, we focus on the gruesomeness of the physicality of it, but it almost seems like Paul and others reflecting focus more on the spiritual gruesomeness of it, right? Like the, the metaphysical gruesomeness of it. Um, I think there's a real forsakenness. Right? Like I, he's clearly quoting Psalm 22, but I think like he picked this because there's, to some extent, a real forsakenness. Now, um, Carrie, I'll just put my cards on the table. I probably wouldn't articulate it quite the same way you do. I think of it a little different. That's okay, right? But I do think there's a genuine forsakenness. Now, what exactly that means, that gets into a whole other 
long yeah, discussion man, of one, parsing. Man. I want you to carefully explain to me how the Trinity <laughs> has an experience of forsakenness. Which yeah. Is that which has been in and will be since before yeah. and ever after in all of eternity. Yeah. It, it gets I, complicated. I want you to explain that to me in uh, human terms, right? Okay. Now. Yeah. In in what? Twenty minutes. Okay. Uh. Well. Uh. Well. Uh. Well, yeah. Next week. No, yeah. I'll, I'll cover that next week. Yeah. Same bat time. Same bat channel. Uh. Yeah. There's a heaviness and a forsakenness about the cross, clearly. Um. I do find it interesting he doesn't say my father, my father. Why have you forsaken me? I know he's quoting Psalm 22, but like I, I would have expected a reference to the father in that moment. I don't. I find that intriguing. Um, There's a reference to the father in Luke. There is. Yeah. Not here. And I, I think also it says something that this is the only thing he says on the cross. Here. Right? In Mark. The only thing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now he dies. This is... Um, and then, like, if you go forward in Mark, and I'm trying to draw this forward a little bit, like, I think Mark really ends in verse 8 of chapter 16, right? That's why your Bible puts brackets around the ending of it, is because it's a latter edition. And if you stop at verse 8, you can feel that sense of hopelessness, in a sense, right? So there, uh, so they went out and fled from the tomb, the ladies, for they were terrified and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The end. Happy ending. But I think the brilliance of that is, it's almost like um, in the same way that the people are teasing him and saying, oh, he's the son of God. Mark is almost like, well, all hope is lost. And your natural response is to say, no, it's not. And clearly they told somebody because Mark wrote this gospel. Right? Like you see that rhetorical brilliance. I, so I think almost the, the way he paints the portrait on purpose like that is for you to push back a little and be like, there's more. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that, that's the great explanation for why they added it. They were unsatisfied with the way it ended. Uh, and then Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or Matthew, Luke, and John, I mean, they certainly don't paint it like that. Right? Uh, but I also want to say that this gets back to the eucatastrophe, right? It's only if, if it's truly a catastrophe that then the consequences can be good. Like, there's a real forsakenness about it. It's truly forsaken. It's truly depraved. This is awful. But if God can bring hope out of a situation like that, then, see where I'm going, if he can do it out of the least hopeful situation in the entire universe, in the entire scope of human history, then he could do it for my petty problems, my first world problems. Sure enough. Is there something redeemable, even in the worst of my pain? I think so, actually. Not because of me, but because of Christ and him crucified. Um, all right, moving on a bit. Verse 35, when some of the bystanders heard it, they said, listen, he's calling for Elijah. Why did they think he's calling for Elijah when he quotes that, by the way? That's something to dwell with. That's something to dwell with. And someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. They're still obsessed with Elijah, by the way. Interesting. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. We're not told what it is he says in his cry, or if it's just like a cry of pain. Breathes his last. 
and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Okay, we got to sit there for a second. Uh, way back when, for anybody who was here way back when, when we were still in Mark chapter 1, do you remember me saying this thing about it? Jesus' baptism. Uh, he comes up out of the water and he sees the heavens torn apart ripped in two. It's the same word that's used here at the tearing of the veil. So last time we got a, a glimpse into heaven and we heard the voice of the Father. Don't you remember? Whenever Jesus comes up out of the water, the heavens are ripped. And when they're ripped, uh, Jesus says, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. Now here we are at the cross, at uh, the crucifixion. And Jesus, as he breathes his last, it makes it seem almost simultaneously, although he doesn't use immediately, which is his favorite word. But he does say, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, all the way through. A couple quick details. This curtain is huge, super thick, right? This is not like a stage curtain. This is certainly not like a shower curtain. This This is like a, this is truly a veil, right? This is huge. It's thick. It's made of animal skin. It's, it's. It's no small feat for this thing to rip into, and it's it's not like uh, like your shower curtain, which is thin and wispy, and you know if if you cough at it, it might you know rip. It's just, it's not like this. This doesn't happen easily, right? And the whole thing splits in two from top to bottom. And also, here's something: we saw this the other day. Whenever the high priest accuses Jesus of blasphemy, whenever the high priest says you're committing blasphemy, what does the high priest do to his clothes? He tear he rends his garments. This is classic Old Testament imagery for mourning. The father is mourning the death of his beloved son. But as he mourns the death of his beloved son, a special change is now occurring. Somebody other than just the high priest can now apparently go into the holy. I mean, if you're standing there and you're not a chief priest and you're not the high priest and then it rips in two. Now you're standing in the holy of holies. Oops. Well, now it seems the, the veil has been removed. And now there is no separation of any kind. There seems to have been a separation with Jesus of some sort with the forsakenness, right? But now there's not. For us, anyway. Right? It's torn in two from top to bottom. Go ahead. When when people ripped their cloaks back then, we got to remember that if if I rip my shirt open Mm -hmm. because of morning, I got 15 others in my closet. Yeah. And they did. Some of those people, that's all they had. Yeah. So when they were, I mean, it meant something when they ripped their, their clothes. So yeah, it's like an act of solidarity almost. Right? Like, I'm as good as dead to be without this person. Like, like it's an act of solidarity in a way, right? Um, we're, we're not a very, uh, our culture is not as symbolic as it used to be. Right, like that deep symbolism of that kind of thing. Like you even see people like trying to skirt a traditional funeral and all the traditional imagery because they're like, well, we don't want to go all that. No, like there's something to the imagery, right? Like, and in that sense, it's an act of solidarity. I think, like, like you're, um, you're right. They don't have they don't have one to spare, right? And so this is this hurts them. It's like if if um, if I'm hurting in my my emotion, I shall now also hurt in my my physicality. Because it's not enough for me to, like, everybody's got to know just what I'm going through. I think a comparison to us would be if we took our car and cut it in half. <laughs> you know? Or just 
just gave him the use of the It'd be it'd be a significant event in life. That's a good comparison. I, I was thinking, I, I feel like there's a movie I've seen where, like, after, you know, someone's best friend, lover, father, somebody dies, they go and drive off their car, get drunk, and crash it, right, to a million pieces. Uh, that's something closer. Yeah. That's something closer to... That's a good comparison. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Just, just a side note. Yeah. Have you ever wondered what... But the priests thought when when they discovered that the uh, veil had been ripped. Yeah. Well, historically, they were in the middle of something at the time when Jesus died. Was the same time that they sacrificed the lamb. So they would be about probably about that time. You know, they've been doing something ever since the creation of the temple getting ready to anoint the high priest getting ready to take the blood and anoint in the Holy of yeah. Holies and that probably got disrupted yeah. by the temple. So there's nothing historically that says that got yeah. disrupted, but the priest would have been ready to totally. go in yeah. and appease God with the, with the Paschal Lamb. And that probably got interrupted that year. Yes. Have you seen the Passion of the Christ? There's parts of it I like, parts of it I don't like. I think they'd get this right. They do that exactly. They're in the temple offering the sacrifices and things, and then it tears, and they're like, and, and the look of sheer horror on their face, because, like, this is, this is a catastrophe, and they don't mean the good kind. They mean the bad kind. Like, they're, oh, like, this, yeah, is, like, this is awful. This is clearly not a sign of approval, you know? Yes! Like, you know, it's like at your wedding day, you're, like, up at the front of the altar, and, like, you have a candle there, and it falls over, and the whole building catches on fire. It's like, that's really You don't not, take that as a good omen. A great you take that omen. as a bad omen. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder also, could it be both, though? Like, can it be both a sign of favor for those who are far off and maybe a sign of warning to those who are near? I've often wondered if God's signs of judgment or, or of uh, warning are... are I, I often wonder if sometimes we're too quickly to say, well, that's a judgment. And I'm like, it is and it isn't. Right? Was the whale that swallowed Jonah a judgment or a grace? It was grace. Right? It's both. I think it was, well, he, the, it's not the, comfortable. The storm was a judgment. The <laughs> fish fair. was great. He tried, I think Jonah tried to kill himself, right? He hops off into the boat, off the boat, right? But the whale saves his life. The, the fish, whatever, uh, saves his life. Um, oh, verse 39. Now the centurion who stood facing him, Jesus, he saw that in, his, uh, in this way he breathed his last. And he said, truly this man was God's son. Seriously? Seriously? You yeah. see a criminal dying. They're, they're in the, uh, the, the, the gurney and they have the, the poison injected and they're, they breathe their last. Any last words, punk? Yeah. And then the person standing by says, now that's the son of the president right there. Do you see that? Because you remember Caesar's favorite title for himself. One of his favorite titles was God. Right? What? Son of God. Implying that he said it sarcastically? The centurion? Yeah. No, I don't think he did. I'm saying, I think the centurion was genuine. I do That's think, what makes it all the more outrageous. I think people, I think it's less outrageous. Maybe. Sorry for it. Go ahead. Uh, I think it's maybe less outrageous than we think it is. I think okay. death in this period, like a good death, is like a really, like, for, for modern Americans, there's this kind of attitude, like every death is, like, a no death is dignified and every death is a tragedy. It's like mm. kind of like would be like the like sympathetic way of putting it, right? 
Um, that's what we feel. Yeah, that's what we feel. Versus like but they like, think. That's not that's really good. like the attitude that you're going to find in a Roman or a Jew in this period, right? There's like a huge difference between like um, Plato saying like, remember the cock for us, Galpius and, or Socrates rather, right? Like that's like a, like a major cultural touchstone. Yeah. Um, or, you know, they're like, there's a huge difference between someone who goes to their death, like in control of themselves um, with courage, like, and someone who goes to their death crying and afraid. Um, and whatever is happening, uh, to the centurion's appearance, he, I think he sees, like, yeah. Jesus is. Yeah, he, he sees, For, like, uh, for as much as he says, Eloi, Eloi, Samas, Sabachthani, he also, there's also this perception of the centurion, like, this, yes. this guy is dying well. And this was a big thing in the church's mission as well, is that people would see the martyrs die, and they would say... Oh, wow. Yeah, like, like um, and even, like, even their opponents said, like, the, that there is an effect like philosophy in Christianity for the poor and the stupid and uneducated people because they saw these people die, and they were mm. like, this is a, like, a mark of, of wisdom. And, yeah, and the, the other Gospels would convey that sense, right? Like, more, di- more directly... So that's a good point. I will say, I don't think most of them, whenever they saw a martyr, said, now that's the son of God. That's true. No, so, it's, so definitely, it's the there's definitely like yeah. a, a, like... That's fair. From, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a not, step up. Yeah, I just don't think it's like... The fact that he's being murdered isn't necessarily as strong a proof against that as you would expect. I agree. I'll say this. Uh, the, the veil... Hold on, I see it. The veil was torn, remember? And the, the heavens are torn apart. What did God, uh, what did the Father say to Jesus at the baptism? This is my, remember Mark loves sandwiches, around the whole of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And if he was baptized, which is interesting, and we call baptism a new birth, yeah? So really from the beginning to end of life, or at least the sanctified life, so to say, uh, you have a bracket, right? He's my son, he's my son. He's my son, that's his son, right? You see that? And the, the tearing of the veil the tearing of the veil is like this heaven um descending in glorious praise and then at the end the father rending his garments perhaps but yeah or well we don't know jesus hung on the cross for a while yeah so when the guy actually stayed but there was other things happening number one the sky fell dark yeah number two there were dead people coming out the graves walking around town apparently hundreds yeah. of them and people knew all these people that had died this was there was stuff going on that day that Grandpa? if you were listening yeah. <laughs> you yeah. would have gotten an idea something yeah something major happened here today this this wasn't just a normal person dying clearly yeah and it's funny um i'll end here do, do we do we over time tend to understand less or more significant historical moments as we reflect on them? I think we tend to understand more about them as we go on. In the moment, it's so crazy and so much is happening. We're like, oh, oh, oh. but then we reflect back and we're like, you know, really, you look back and that's what led to this and that's what led to this and that's what led to this and that caused this. And, you know, we didn't even know it, but over on the other side of town, this was happening. And, and, and that's kind of what I, I hear there. Like, you know, there's, there's some claims out there like, well, it's, you know, they didn't write this down until after he had uh, already been resurrected and gone to heaven. So how do we know, right, that they didn't just forget? 
I'm like, well, A, their memory was a lot better in that day and age than ours, tremendously. They didn't have TikTok, so they still had an attention span. And they also, like, they, yeah, they, uh, they also, like, I, I push back on that idea that the more time passes, the less we understand it. Actually, I think the opposite tends to be true more, that the more time you have to reflect on a truly deeply significant event, the more you're like, oh, shoot, you know, I didn't think about it from this perspective, but, oh, and you know, I heard so-and-so said this happened, and that makes sense. I didn't hear that part, but that's, that's true. And, right? Like, it builds, actually. And I think that's I think all the more true that. with the crucifixion of our... To a certain extent. Some of them were less significant. The claim is that it's the truly big moments, right? Okay, but I think we also started to forget the Holocaust, and I feel like that was pretty significant. No, that's true, but that's a whole other... (laughs) Stop it. I'm trying to end. I'm trying to end, both of you. Uh, See you next week, buddy. Yeah. Uh, It's taken us this long to get to the crucifixion of Mark, and I didn't get to do near as much as like I would have liked to do with Mark, but thank you so much. Um, for everything. I've truly enjoyed it. May I close us in prayer and be done. Oh, glorious God in heaven, we thank you. We praise you. Thank you for sending your spirit with power upon your servant Mark to write a story to remind us of the life that your son lived. Thank you for the quirky details that are included in this telling of the gospel. Thank you that, um, that we've had time to slow down and try to pay attention to those. Uh, Lord, I just pray that whatever portion of this Bible of ours that we find ourselves reading, whether it's the Gospels or the Epistles or the Psalms or whatever, that we would slow down to notice the ways that you allowed your children to tell your story under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. That we would notice not only the text, but also the texture to the text. And that because of noticing that, that our hearts would be more inclined to love you and serve you more inclined to tell the story in our own ways to our fellows as well. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 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 Thanks, everyone. Thank you.